All right, New Life Student Ministries, everyone all together. How are you guys doing this evening? We good? Sweet. I love this that you guys are up here. It's like, I'm so glad you guys aren't like in the back rows. Just right up here, I love it. Um, all right, we're gonna go ahead and jump straight into the message today. I am expectant and excited, and I feel this weight for today's message because um, I believe God wants to speak to you in a really special way tonight. If you haven't been here the last few weeks to catch you up, we've been in a series in the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. There's Genesis at the very beginning where God creates the heavens and the earth, forms mankind out in his own image. Eventually, it doesn't take very long for mankind to mess it up. They sin, they fall away from the Lord. And God chooses a man named Abraham. Everyone say Abraham. Abraham. All the junior eyes in here, I've been teaching you how to be Hebrew scholars. And you know that there's no like A sound in Hebrew, there's only ah, so it'd be Abraham. Everyone say Abraham. Sounds amazing. Hearing everyone say that was weird, just ah, it's weird. But we have the guy named Abraham who God calls and says, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. And we see Abraham's line go all the way through to Isaac, to Jacob, and then eventually Jacob's many, many sons. They had a big old family. And we have this guy named Joseph who goes to Egypt sold into slavery by his brothers, that's awkward. And then his brothers need like food because they're in a famine, so they come back to Egypt and they have to talk to him to get food, which is even more awkward. But we see that God provides for his people and the people of God are in Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And Exodus one and two, where we pick up the story, is that the Israelites or the Hebrews, God's chosen people, are in harsh slavery. I'm gonna say slavery. slavery. So they're undergoing harsh slavery, they are being afflicted with heavy burdens by the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And we see, that, and we, we talked about in, in week one of this series how God hears. Everyone say, God hears. What this means is this almighty God, his chosen people, as they're crying out in desperation, as they're crying out in suffering and agony, God is a God who hears. He's not just sitting over there like, oh, you're going through some hard stuff, like, sucks for you, too bad. Like, no, God hears, God remembers his covenant. God is close and personal with his people, and that's what we see in Exodus 1 and 2. At the beginning of Exodus 2, we have this, this baby boy come on the scene who we are told is like a good-looking baby, good for him. It was Moses, everyone say Moses. Moses. We have Moses come on the scene, and we know eventually that God chooses Moses to lead his people out of Egypt into the promised land, but we are introduced to Moses in, in Exodus 2 where the Pharaoh orders that every baby boy be killed, gets thrown into the Nile, the sense of absolute Injustice, And then we get to Exodus 3 and 4 after Moses has killed an Egyptian slaver that's beating an Israelite slave. He runs for fear of his life, goes out, meets his shoddy in this land named Midian, gets married, has kids. He's living the shepherd life. He's vibing. But where we leave off in Exodus 2 is the slavery of the people gets worse and worse and continues to get worse. And we, and we pick up in Exodus 3 where we talked about last week where God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. The burning bush is this, this classic, famous moment of God calling out to Moses and revealing who he is as the great I am. Everyone say the I am. I am. And so God reveals himself to Moses and says that he is calling the people out of slavery into the promised land. And so he, God's saying, you know, I've heard, I've heard the cries of my people. I know their affliction. And Moses is like, yo, 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 like, I'm loving this. And God's like, so I'm telling you to go and deliver them. He's like, bruh, like, hold up. Like, I thought you were gonna do all this and I was just along for the ride. But God chooses Moses and in the midst of all of Moses' questions and fears and doubts, God says, don't fear, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you, my presence will be with you. I'll give you these signs. 
God comforts Moses by saying his presence will be with him. But Moses asks this question, he says, God, like, if they ask, like, who, who is this God, what shall I say your name is? And he says, I am who I am. I love the literal translation of this in Hebrew, it's I be who I be. That's awesome. Everyone say, I be who I be. Thank you, Jones, you inspired me. I be who I be, which is God saying that he will continue to be who he has always been and he will continue to be in the future who he is now and who he was in the past. Trippy, yes, because it's eternity and God has existed for eternity. But the bottom line that we learned was that God is permanent. Everyone say permanent. permanent. Meaning that his nature never changes. He's always faithful, he's always good, he's always the same God. And now we leave off in Exodus chapter five, um, where God is calling Moses to go back to the land of Egypt with his brother named Aaron to go and deliver the people. And that's where we are now. So before we go ahead and jump into the message, I want us to bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, right now we admit that we are nothing without you. We're nothing without the life that you give in our lungs. We're nothing without the sustaining work that you do in us, Jesus. We're nothing without your sacrifice on the cross, Jesus. We are hopeless and broken and leading ourselves to death and separation without your cross. Right now, God, I pray that you would humble us to deeply know that without you, we have nothing and we are nothing. Lord, I pray that as I speak today that I would get out of the way and that your message of the gospel and the power of your atoning work on the cross would transform us. God, for someone who's never heard the gospel, would you come, Holy Spirit, and fill their hearts. For those who have grown up in church and the gospel is just a cute story, God, transform our hearts to receive your word today. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. All right, here we go. We're jumping into Exodus 5 through 13. It's a huge chunk of scripture. So I'm gonna try not to preach for an hour. If I do, y'all gotta deal with it. I'm, so, I'm just kidding, it's not gonna go that long. But we jump into Exodus 5. So after Moses has this conversation with God at the burning bush, it leads us in to these famous, uh, this famous series of events called the plagues. And so God tells Moses to go back and deliver the people of Israel out of the slavery that they're enduring in Egypt. And so we see that Moses comes up um, to Pharaoh, and he is like, hey man, you need to let the people go and sacrifice to God. And Pharaoh's sitting there like, who, who is this God? I am like, yeah, no, I'm God here. That's not gonna happen. And so he says, after Moses first comes to Pharaoh, he's gonna make the work of the Israelites even worse, increase their slavery, increase the work that they have to do, not give them the supplies in order to do the work, basically to make the task that they were given impossible so that the Hebrews would be beaten and enslaved incredibly harshly. Now see, when we talk about the plagues, it, sometimes it becomes very familiar, like much of the Bible for us. We hear certain stories in the Bible and we just kinda get used to it. I want you to think about like the absolute just like wildness of the plagues. I don't know if wildness is a word, but we're going with it. The absolute just like craziness of the 10 plagues, okay? Like who's grown up in church and has heard about the plagues? Or maybe you've seen the Prince of Egypt and you've seen the plagues, amen, amen, okay. So, so we talk about these plagues like they're ordinary, but I want you to think about like, if you were an Egyptian, hopefully you're not an Egyptian because you'd be a slaver, but an Egyptian or an Israelite in this day and age, there's no such thing as sci-fi movies, there's no such thing as like you've never seen any of these plagues ever happen. 
Like, you don't have a story, like, where it's, like, Batman can, like, hit a button, like, a thousand bats swarms, we can, like, camouflage into the crowd. It's, like, they have no concept for any of these things. So all of a sudden, it's, like, you're just chilling, like, in your house, drinking water, now it gets turned to blood, and it says that every vessel with water was turned to blood. So you're just chilling, all of a sudden, you're, like, this looks red and thicker than regular water. What is happening? Like, you don't even know that Pharaoh and, like, Moses was, like, having this conversation. All of a sudden, like, you have frogs and gnats everywhere. Like, I'm pretty sure that every single one of us would be, like, screaming our heads off at certain plagues. Like, is anyone really afraid of frogs in here? Random. Does anyone think frogs are creepy? You, you can be honest. You can be honest. Yeah, frogs can be weird. There's, there's like, flies all of a sudden. So there's, like, a swarm of flies flying everywhere. Um, so from the first to 10th plague, we have the Nile turned to blood. We have, we have frogs inhabiting the land. We have a big swarm of gnats come up. And it says that on this plague, the Egyptian magicians, try to say that three times fast, Egyptian, Egyptian magicians, I can't even say it once. They come up and they, and they find a way to conjure up through magic and, and, and dark spiritual power to, to basically you know, like do the same thing that God did, but it was like a lesser version. But Pharaoh was like, see, like, this God is not all that. But in the third plague, for whatever reason, they couldn't create, like, recreate the gnats. Like, gnats was, like, God's triumph on Egypt. Like, guess you can't get, like, all these gnats up here. But we have the gnats coming, and then we have flies, and then we have the Egyptian livestock dying, but not the Israelites. The Israelites were spared, but the Egyptians' livestock dies. And then we have, like, I think this would by far be the worst one. We have boils come over the people of Egypt. Has anyone, like, had, like, an awful mosquito bite before? Yeah, I, when I was like 10 years old, we were dropping my oldest brother off at college at ORU. And so like in Colorado, like you don't really know what a mosquito is other than it's like, yeah, they live in like a far country named like Texas or something, I don't know. But like you, like you feel like you can't be touched by mosquitoes until you pull up to Tulsa, Oklahoma in August at a house with a pool and like a swamp and like the dad didn't do anything to take care of the mosquitoes. And so as we were taking my brother to college, I'm like out chilling in the pool, enjoying the... 110 humid weather, it's awful. You should be grateful that you live in Colorado. But I got a mosquito bite right here. So what, what happened was, is that I'm like, the next day I wake up and I look like, like Rocky, man. Like I look like Rocky when he's like, cut me, man, cut me. Like, and so I'm going up and like meeting all my brother's college friends. Like, hi, my name is Mateo with like half an eye. It was awful. So imagine the worst mosquito bite ever times like a billion. It's like boils all over the Egyptian's skin. Like that sounds like absolute agony. We see this massive hailstorm that destroys everything. We see a huge thing of like locusts. It says in the Bible that God made a huge east wind appear all like day and all night and it's made like locusts. Just like the locusts are just getting like yeeted into Egypt. Just like, just like taken off. And then the ninth plague, we have absolute darkness cover the land of Egypt. But where the Israelites live, they're not being afflicted by these plagues. I want you to think about like how like strange that would be. Like you're chilling, like having like your cup of coffee in the morning. That's what I would be doing, having my cup of coffee. And all of a sudden you see these like just incredibly like dark black clouds like come over like Egypt, like the Egyptian cities. And I'm like on the outskirts living in like the, the Israelite land. And it's like, hmm, there's about to be a really bad storm coming our way. And then it just like stays over Egypt. So you're like you're living in like the Colorado sunlight and they're over there like pitch black. Like it's like if you actually visualize the plagues, it's like that is so crazy. And then the 10th plague, the worst plague of them all is the death of the firstborn of Egypt. We also call this the Passover. God passes over the people of Israel. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit because it's an incredibly challenging thing to talk about. You know, some of the plagues, it's like, yeah, like flies or like whatever, just like storming around the people. Like Pharaoh's probably really irritated, like had a fly swatter just trying to kill all of them. But then it's like, you get to the death of the firstborn of Egypt. Things kind of change a little bit because it's, it's a heavy thing 
talk about. We're gonna get there in a minute, but I wanna lay out real quick five purposes of the plagues. So we see that God uses these plagues intentionally, okay, to deliver his people out of the land of Egypt. So we're gonna go ahead and put these five purposes up on the screen. First, it was for God to wage war against the polytheism of the Egyptians. Everyone say polytheism. This is a religious type that has multiple gods. So in this, and for the Egyptians, they had the God of the Nile, the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of like the, like fill in the blank, whatever. They had all these different gods and, and the people would sacrifice to these gods to appease them and so they would get rain for their crops and so that the Nile would continue to make the land of Egypt prosperous. They had all these different gods and what happened is in every single plague, God is targeting a different god. And we see this from, from the get-go where the Nile was seen as one of the most supreme gods in all of Egypt, because the, the God of the Nile is the one that, that made the land um, flowing and, and made it full and living and prosperous. But we see that God turns the Nile to blood like that. It's easy. Every bit of water is turned to blood. We see God's power over the polytheistic gods. And what God is doing is showing that he is greater than any of the other little g gods that the Egyptians follow. The second thing is for God to wage war against Pharaoh, who exalted himself as God, if you're taking notes, go ahead and write these down. For God to wage war against Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In this, in this culture, Pharaoh was held up to be like the king, the king of all kings. And he was held up to be basically on the same level as a God. He had absolute power, he had absolute control. Whatever he said would go. And his goal is just to build up the greatest dynasty for his own self-ego. So we see that God, it's actually like a God, it's God of the Bible, I, the great I am versus Pharaoh, head to head. And we see Pharaoh is trying to hold on to power and hold on to the slaves so he can grow his empire. But God shows that he is greater than even Pharaoh. So God's waging war against Pharaoh. Thirdly, we see that God is revealing himself to the Egyptians and the Israelites. Now this is important here, that God is revealing his character, his strength, his power. He's revealing who he is to not only the Israelites, but to both the Israelites and the Egyptians. He's making sure everyone knows, hey, I am the one true God and I want you to follow me. And these plagues are a way of God revealing himself as the one true God. So that's number three. Number four, to offer mercy to Egypt. Everyone say mercy. Now some of you may be feeling like, hold up, the plagues do not sound very merciful. Like, I don't know if like hail hitting everything and like, people and hidden animals is mercy. But we see here in the plagues that after every single plague occurs, we see that Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh hardens his heart or we see that Pharaoh says like, yeah, the people can go and sacrifice, but they can't take the women and the children, only the males. And Moses is like, no, that's not what the Lord said. We need to take everyone. Or, or Pharaoh will say, okay, you can go. And then once God reverses the plague and takes away like the billions of frogs, like in people's beds and like dishes and houses and everything, once God took away whatever the plague was, Pharaoh just changed his mind and said, no, you're, you're not leaving. You're, you're my slaves. You're, you're my people. You're staying here. And so we see that with every single plague, God is offering mercy. He's offering a chance for Pharaoh to let the people go. But we see ultimately in the fifth thing, the fifth purpose, that God uses the plagues to judge Egypt for their sin, their slavery, and their murder. Everyone say sin, slavery, and murder. God judges the people of Egypt for the sin, the injustice, the immorality that they did against the Israelites. Hundreds of years of slavery and killing the firstborn, or killing all the, the male babies 
of the Hebrews, just throwing innocent life into the Nile River. This absolute injustice, we see that God is judging Egypt for their sin, their slavery, and their murder against all the people. Have you ever seen an incredibly unjust situation on earth? Have you ever been a part of something that is so morally wrong, it's, just, it's, it's against the law or it's against what is the right thing to do? It's, it's just utter, atrociously unjust, it's completely unjust. I can relate with that being the youngest child in my family. Just kidding, that was to a lesser degree. I can relate with this being the youngest child in my family. Growing up, I, my three older siblings, you guys know one of them with the long hair that looks like me, uh, Pastor Victor, him and my two other siblings were very close in age, and then my parents had me a little bit later, and so they'd always get to do everything like together because they were older than me, and me as the youngest, this poor youngest child. Do we have any youngest children in here? Yes. It was, so many people were like cheering because you know that like we're the favorites and we try to act like we're the victim. Like, no, like our life is hard. We get it pretty good. But me as the youngest child, um, you know, if, if my siblings got to go to youth group and it's like, well, they all got to go to youth group. What about me? Like, why should they be able to go? And like, I, and I'm the only like kid in the Mendoza family that I can't go. I was like 10 years old. Like I wasn't even like fifth grade yet. But they were like, like my mom, I eventually went to youth group in like fifth grade because my mom was like, fine, like, I'm, I'm tired of you like grumbling, just go. But as a, like the youngest child, you have this sense of like, this isn't fair if all my siblings can do it, but I can't. Now, for the majority of you in this room, you probably see things the other way as like the not youngest child of like how unfair it is. Someone said yes, like you're preaching to me. You make me feel seen. Like some of you as like not the youngest child, you watch like the thing that you would have gotten a spanking for when you were a kid. It's like your little sibling does that five times in a row and like your mom or dad are like, oh, he or she is just so precious. Like you weren't supposed to agree that loud. But I, I remember one example so I, uh, growing up, most, my, all my siblings and I were homeschooled for a little bit, and then in middle school and high school, I wasn't homeschooled anymore. My siblings were, were homeschooled for most of that time. Um, but so for, for their school, they got to read the books of the Lord of the Rings. Has anyone seen Lord of the Rings in here or just loves Lord of the Rings? Uh, yeah, Lord of the Rings is awesome. I've heard that the new series coming out is like really bad according to critics, but I hope it's great. I really hope it's great. But... My siblings were huge Lord of the Rings people. Like we had the action figures, we had the trading cards, like movies, like, all the extended versions. Like they were huge Lord of the Rings people. But my mom's rule for them as like a reward for their hard work, if they would read the books, which are like reading through the Bible like three times like over, like those are long books, like at least a thousand pages. And so if they read through the three books, they'd be able to watch the movies, right? Sounds, that sounds fair, sounds like a good homeschool move. Like mom knows, like they'll actually read these books. And so for me, you know, I wasn't homeschooled in middle school and high school. And so when I was in especially high school, I really wanted to watch these movies, but I hadn't read the books yet. And so, you know, youngest child is like working his charm, doing his thing, like, mom, dad, like, I really want to watch Lord of the Rings. Like, I came with every good reason. Like, there's so many great, like, like tie-ins, like the Christian life in Lord of the Rings. Like, I want to be a man of God, like Aragorn. Like, please just let me, like... And so, and so, you know, having the power of a youngest child, I, like my, especially my mom, I was surprised. My dad was kind of like the, the partier of the family, just like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, but my mom, like she's, are any of you guys Enneagram people? Yes, some of you. So she's like an Enneagram one. So like there's a right and there's a wrong. And so like contradicting yourself is wrong, right? And so my mom is like struggling and my siblings were like not having any of it. Like they were not having any of it. It's like, mom, dad, 
You, you have like, he has to read the books too. You can't let him get out of it. And so my siblings prevailed. Eventually I did read the books and watch Lord of the Rings movies. But bottom line with this is that all of us deep inside have a deep care for justice. Like being able to watch Lord of the Rings movies and your younger sibling not. But we all have a deep care for justice. Ultimately, because our God is a God who deeply cares about justice. Our God cares about justice in the world and how you treat your friends and in the bullies at school. God sees that and he cares. God, God sees the blatant sin in our generation, the blatant sin of our world, whatever it is, division in the church or, or racism or, or treating the poor in an absolutely horrible, disgusting way. And God sees that and he says, that's unjust. And when God sees injustice in the world, God gets angry. Everyone say angry. Now, now this is kind of like a scary word sometimes in the church, right? Like, oh, like God's angry or like God is just. And we kind of like, it makes us feel like we need to like hide away and shrink. But the reality is that when we look at this passage in Exodus, we see that God is bringing justice to the Egyptians. I want you to think about what the Egyptians did for 430 years is how long they enslaved the people of Israel. 430 years. It's longer than all of us have been alive, if in case you didn't know. But 430 years, over four centuries of intense slavery. And we, and we see through scripture, just in the first few chapters of Exodus, and even Exodus five and six, that Pharaoh keeps on making the slavery harsher and harsher. He makes it worse and worse. He takes advantage of the poor and the powerless. We see the death of innocent babies. Like this isn't, this isn't like, like Pharaoh's just like a little bit of like a rude leader, like a bad king. He's killing innocent babies. Like act like you've never read this in scripture before. Like act like this is your first time reading through this and you're hearing that baby boys out of a certain people group are being thrown into the Nile River, drowned. What? I want you guys to think about this. This is the injustice that we see in the book of Exodus, that we see the, the Egyptians taking advantage of the Israelites, 430 years of slavery, killing children. And what we see here is that sin and injustice lead to death. Everyone say death. And we see that eventually in the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, the worst plague of the worst plague, like God tries time and time again, gives other plagues and gives Pharaoh and the Egyptians a chance to let the Israelites go. But the hardness of Pharaoh's heart leads to death. We see that Pharaoh is intensely prideful. Pharaoh's prideful. All he cares about is him being revealed as God. Like we were saying, like in the Egyptian culture, Pharaoh would have been seen as a God. So all that Pharaoh wanted to do was make money, get his empire as big as possible. And if that meant enslaving hundreds of thousands of people, brutally whipping them and brutally treating them and killing their children so that they didn't overtake the Egyptians, then Pharaoh was gonna do that. The pride of his heart was so great. We see that when the Niles turned to blood in Exodus 7, that the people of Egypt and Israel had to go to the base of the Nile, right next to it, and dig for water. Because the, the river is so flooded because the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, it's flooded with blood, so they have to dig next to the river. And it says in Exodus 7 that Pharaoh did not take these things to heart. What that means in Hebrews is that Pharaoh did not care. It meant nothing to him. His own people didn't have water. I want you to think about the injustice. This happens in countries in the world. 
Intense injustice that leads to people's persecution and suffering and slavery. We see this in Pharaoh. We see the people of Egypt are so focused on worshiping their other gods that they don't care about the injustice that's happening. They have this self-centered desire to be the greatest empire on earth. And this is what leads us to Exodus 12. I don't have time to read the whole chapter. This is what leads us to the Passover. I'm gonna say the Passover. What we see in the Passover is God gets, gets Moses and Aaron ready for the last plague. The worst of the worst plagues so that Pharaoh will finally let the Israelites go. So what we see in the Passover is God commands Moses and Aaron that every, every family is supposed to kill a lamb without blemish. Everyone say without blemish. I mean, they were perfect, without fault. They're supposed to kill a lamb and they're gonna have a nice feast, eat, eat all the lamb, and then they're gonna take the blood of the lamb and put it on their doorposts. The blood of the lamb up on the doorpost. That when the angel of the Lord would come to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians, that the people of Israel would be spared, that God would pass over their sin and deliver them. Now I wanna make this clear, everyone look at me. God does not take pleasure in death or in punishment. Okay, everyone look at me. It's important, because sometimes we read, we read scriptures and we usually have two tendencies. Either one is we read a difficult scripture like this, like, okay, God killing the firstborn, like that's the last plague, and we're either like, oh, that's like, if my unsafe friend asked me about that, like, I would have no idea what to say, so I'm gonna ignore it. I wanna tell you guys, everyone look at me, as, a, as an older brother, I've seen so many people that have grown up within the faith that try to ignore passages and ignore difficult things, and because they ignore it eventually, it comes back to bite them and they walk away from the Lord. So our response can't be to, to walk away from difficult passages, but instead our other tendency is to read this and say, well, God is just a mean, like, really just like irritated God, he's just annoyed, or he takes joy in killing or punishing. Some of you, your experience with maybe an earthly father or a coach or a, a teacher may give you a picture of God as this harsh taskmaster like the Egyptians. Just want you to get your act together and do better and be better and do this and do that. And don't like, it's like Christianity is like a list of do's and don'ts. That's sometimes how we teach about God. But God does not take pleasure in punishment or in death. He, he's a God who is merciful. And we're gonna see this in a second. I wanna call the worship team up. You see, the injustice that we see in, this, in these passages in Exodus, rouses the anger of God. Okay, it makes God angry. Let me say, rightfully so, it makes God angry. If a ruler were to come in here and kill all of your little siblings because you're Christians, what would you do with that? I want you to actually put yourself in the Israelite shoes. You'd probably wanna like kill that ruler fight him, throw him in jail, do something, your response wouldn't be like, oh, like, bro, you're good. Like, like any, if you did that, like, everyone would look at you and say, like, what is wrong with you? Like, if a father just gave up his family to slavery, we would look at that person and hold them accountable and say, what is wrong with you? That is wrong. That's just, that is wrong. This is what we see in the book of Exodus, that God, his anger is roused by a cry for justice from the Israelites. The Israelites are crying out to God like we, like we discussed in Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. God is a God who hears his 
people. He's not distant and far off. He hears his people. But you see, the same anger that roused by a cry for justice from the Israelites is what leads Christ, Jesus, to come to earth to satisfy the wrath of God. Now, that's another term. Everyone look at me. I know the worship team's super cool. Everyone look at me. Sometimes we, we try to stay away from saying things like the wrath of God. Because once again, that sounds scary and it sounds like something like that's difficult to preach about. But we see in the cross of Jesus Christ that God pours out his wrath upon Jesus. And so we don't talk about this. We talk about, you know, Jesus coming because he's loving and like just like a really sweet guy. And he's like, don't worry, like I'll forgive your sin and hang on the cross. And there's so much more to it than this. And when we, when we belittle the justice and the anger of God, we belittle the death of Christ, okay? I want us to think about that. If we just make the anger of God or, or the justice of God just like a, like a, let's not talk about it, let's throw it under the rug, then it makes the death of Christ pretty meaningless. It just means that he's a nice guy that comes to, to die just, just so that you can live a better life. But that's not the truth of the gospel. We see that God pours out his wrath on Jesus. You see, the reality is, is that the sin that we see in the book of Exodus, the killing of babies, the slavery, the death that happens because of sin is the exact same thing that we do. Everyone look at me. Nobody talking right now. We without Jesus Christ are a wicked, sinful, broken people. Me and my life, I am I'm an awful human being without Jesus. Without the sacrifice of Jesus, without Jesus taking on the wrath of God, I'd be a pretty awful human being. I'm sorry to tell you, but you would be too. You see, we look at the people, the Egyptians, we see that God punishes them for what they do to the Israelites. Like I was just saying, we look at this story and we say like, that's, that's, like, that's needed. These people were oppressing people. These, the Egyptians were trying to raise themselves and didn't care about the poor and the needy and the marginalized. The, the Israelites, throwing their babies in the Nile, putting them in harsher and harsher slavery. But when we see what sin does, a life separated from God, what this does is it makes brokenness and chaos in our whole world. We see this from the get-go in the creation story. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, everything is beautiful. Can you imagine living in the Garden of Eden? When I, this is so like dumb, but this is what I imagine. When I think about myself living in the Garden of Eden, I'd be like riding a T-Rex, like next, this is so, this is so extra. <laughs> like riding like an old like dinosaur or a lion or a tiger. I'm a, tigers are my favorite animals. Not, totally beside the point. I'd be like riding a tiger, like God's next to me and like, we're just like, we're just hanging, like we're just talking. Weird, some of you thought it could be like a lot more spiritual. <laughs> but in Genesis one and Genesis two, there's perfect relationship, there's wholeness. There's wholeness between God and not just humanity, but all of creation. All of creation, when it's not touched by sin, lives in harmony and people live together. We see what sin does, it, 
It breaks us from God, but also breaks all of creation. And what we see the Egyptians doing is because they live a life of sin, we see what it leads to. Slavery, brokenness, and death. Sin leads to death. Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. And here's the reality, is that every single one of us deserve that death. Some of you are sitting here like, wait, like what? Like I thought Jesus loved me. He does. But we, but we need to zero in on the wrath of God, the anger of God, and the justice of God. That God does not just send Jesus to like, just okay, go be a nice guy, Jesus, like do your thing. God sends Jesus because it's his will for us to have reconciliation, have wholeness with God again. But what that means is that someone has to take the wrath of God. Because guess what? Your sin leads to further separation in the world. It leads to, to further brokenness. Think about like you taking a hammer to a surface and your sin is continually beating this surface. At first there's a little, little crack. But as you continue this the surface gets more and more cracked and broken apart, and this is what sin does in our lives. What we see here in the Passover, the word Passover in Hebrew just means despair, that God passes over the Israelites' house and he repays the injustice of the Egyptians. In the same way, God passes over our sin. He passes over our sin. And Jesus takes on the punishment that we deserve. Romans 3, 25 says this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation uh, by his blood, which means it's a substitute, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance, he had passed over the sins committed beforehand. This is what this is saying. That God sends Jesus to take on the sins of the world, because in we see in the Old Testament that God continues to have mercy on his people. If you read any part of the Old Testament after Exodus or even just in Exodus, you see like just frankly like how stupid the people of Israel are. And and we're no better. We could see God do an incredible miracle. We could we could hear the voice of God. We have the presence of God even in us. And then like we walk out of church and we act like none of that ever happened. The Israelites continually live in their sin. They continue to walk away from God and worship other idols and, and, and mistreat the poor. They do what the Egyptians did to them. They mistreat these people. What we see Jesus do is come to satisfy the wrath of God, to show that our God is just, to show that our God is righteous. He doesn't just look over sin, like, like we were talking about. We wouldn't want a God that just looks over sin. Okay, sometimes we like talk like we do when it comes to like us, like, God, you can look over my sin, but not that person, like that bully at school, like punish them. But, but don't worry about my sin, it's not as bad. We don't want, God is a God of justice. And if, so if he leaves injustice in the earth, what does that do? It leads to further brokenness, further separation. Leads the absolute separation from God. So this is why we need Jesus to make atonement for our sins. Everyone say atonement. Atonement. 
I had the definition somewhere in here to explain this word better, and I can't find it in my notes. But atonement means that God repays the price for our sin through Jesus. That God sends Jesus to atone for the sins, and just like the lamb without blemish in the Passover, Jesus comes without sin, living a perfect life, the only one that could take away the sins of the world and take them on himself, he does that so we may have forgiveness. This is what Hebrews 9, 13 through 15 says. It's gonna be up on the screens. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. All that means is the Old Testament ways of forgiving sin or getting rid of it. How much more will the blood of Christ, everyone say the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, purify us internally from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first, under the first covenant. This is what this means. Jesus comes. He lays down his life for the forgiveness of our sins, takes on the punishment that you and I deserve, which is death and separation from God. And he brings us in to a new covenant with him, which means that we have relationship with the Father that is not based on if you mess up or not. Okay, so God being angry doesn't look like him saying, okay, Teddy, get your act together. Okay, Matthew Allen, get your act together. Read your Bible enough, do everything right or else the covenant's broken. Jesus taking on the punishment for our sins means the wrath of God was satisfied. He does call us to live in holiness. He does call us to live wholeheartedly to him. But he doesn't put shame on us. He doesn't put blame on us. He forgives us because of the work of Christ. I want you to write this down. It's gonna be on the screen. God atones for our sin because he is just, and because he is loving. God doesn't just look over sin, say, ah, it's it's cool, don't worry about it. Sin is serious. That's what I'm trying to connote to you in this message, that sin is costly. If you're messing around right now, I need you to look at me. Sin is costly. It leads to brokenness. Your sin hurts people. My sin hurts people. But God atones for our sin because he is just. He doesn't pass over it. He puts the wrath of God on Christ. He also atones for our sin because he is loving. Everyone say, God is loving. So what we're gonna do, I want you guys to stand up. This is what I wanna call you guys to do. I want you guys to spread out across the room. Don't go with your friends. I need you to be just alone with God. Don't talk, don't talk. We're going to go into some time of worship response. Here's what I love about God. That after the 10th plague, Pharaoh lets the people of Israel go. He accepts the reality that God is truly God. That the great I am is matchless. So he lets the people of Israel go. And we see just a chapter later that Israel's going out and they're encamping by the sea. And Pharaoh says, you know, I'm not, 
I'm not taking this L. I'm gonna go get them. They're stuck, they're stuck over by the sea. I'm gonna go slaughter them. So we see the Pharaoh and his army, they go and pursue Israel. They go and try to kill all the people. This is where we see the story of the crossing of the sea. That God makes a way for the people of Israel to go through the sea on dry land. As the Egyptians go through, he closes the sea, has the final victory over Egypt and reveals his glory to all people on earth. We see here that as God opens up the sea, behind the Israelites is the cloud of God fighting for them against the Egyptians. Like when I try to picture this, I see like this like huge cloud and there's just like lightning, just like going full like Thor mode on like the Egyptians. Like they're all trying to get to the Israelites and God's literally fighting for them. And we see how the people make it through and they are saved. And this is what's true about our God. Is that God doesn't just make atonement for our sin through Jesus and say, all right, it's on you now. I did my part, do your part. Sometimes that's how we teach about it in Christianity. It's, all right, I did, I did my part, Jesus died, like you better get your act together because I'm like an easily irritated God and that's what the anger of God looks like. That's not true. God doesn't just tell us, all right, now that, now that you prayed the prayer or you believe in Jesus, like go figure it out on your own. But this is the truth of the gospel, that God does not just forgive our sins, but he initiates, sustains, and pursues our salvation. He doesn't just pass over and say, okay, this one time you're good, but if you ever do this again, like, you're done. Covenant broken. And that's the beauty of the gospel tonight, friends, that you are not defined by what you do. I want everyone to look at me. You're not defined by what you do. God's not looking for you to get your act together. God's not sitting here saying, come on, I sent my son to die for you. The least you could do is, is get your act together and stop living in sin. Stop, stop doing whatever you're doing. I need you to read your Bible more, pray more. Now to be clear, God doesn't want us to continue to live in injustice. To continue to live in sin, it continues to fracture us. And God calls us to holiness. And we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. He leads us to deeper sanctification. He leads us to deeper holiness. But the reality is, is that the gospel does not say, God saved you once, now do the rest yourself. But the gospel says that God atones for your sin. He forgives your sin. The worst of the worst, the thing you feel like you could never tell anyone, God has forgiven that but also he continues to pursue you. He wants every part of your heart. He wants you to know him and he wants to know everything about you. He wants that close relationship. This is what we're gonna do. For some of you, you guys praying earlier, you've heard the gospel a billion times and you're just like, cool, like cute story. Like I know Jesus dies for me because he loves me. Learned that in Sunday school, cool. I can't, I can't make you get this, but what I can tell you, brothers and sisters, is that this message changes everything. When I was in high school, 16 years old, I was struggling with an addiction. I felt so much shame for what I was struggling with. 
I feel like I couldn't tell anyone. I was supposed to be a good Christian. I was supposed to be a leader, and I was supposed to be A, B, C, and D, and, if, and God can't be happy with me, and God, God doesn't even want a relationship with me because I continue to live in this sin. And shame kept me far from God. And I felt God speak to me one day, and he said, Mateo, shame is not for me. As I was still living in my sin, I felt the Holy Spirit say, Mateo, shame is not for me. And I fought it. I said, no, God, I deserve to be feeling this way. You've called me to be holy. You've called me to be a leader. You've called me to, to do A, B, C, D. And he spoke again, no, shame is not for me. It made me think of Romans 8.1, which says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's now no condemnation. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Everyone look at me. I want you to hear this because God wants you to know this deeply. That if you believe in Jesus as the Lamb of God that took on the weight and the punishment of sin for your forgiveness of sins, that you can have relationship with God the Father, he does not hold shame over your head. Okay, I want you guys to know this. He does not hold shame over your head Saying, remember that last time when you messed up with this sin? When you did this wrong again? If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. When God the Father looks at you, he sees the sacrifices of Jesus, the blood of the covenant, just like the blood over the doorposts of the Israelites' houses, which made the angel Lord pass over. The blood of Christ, it's like a seal on your heart. When God looks at you, he says, Rachel, I see the righteousness of Jesus Christ on you. Aspen, when I look at you, I see the perfection of Jesus Christ. That's what he sees when he looks at you. So this is what I want us to do. We're gonna sit and listen to the words of this song. It's a beautiful proclamation of the gospel what Jesus has done for us, of the fact that shame is broken, that, that Jesus took your shame on the cross. He took the punishment that you and I deserved. We talk about the weight of sin because it's serious. And as Christians, when we love Jesus, we don't wanna continue to live in sin and grieve his heart and, 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 and bring brokenness to the world. But as Christians, we also have the assurance that God has forgiven us that when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So for the next five to 10 minutes, we're gonna worship. And I want you to simply sit and listen to these words and let the truth of the gospel wash over you. Let's worship together.